Okay, welcome to episode seven of Startup Impact Radio, the podcast about entrepreneurs and their vision for changing the world. My co-host is Scott Coe, CEO of Signature Financial Planning, and I'm Joel Reed, CEO of OpenArt, talking to you from Miami. Today, we're talking about solar-powered medical technology with Mark Adkins of LeanMed. Mark has three decades of product development experience and as a director of product development at two different Fortune 500 companies and has been responsible for dozens of multi-million dollar development programs that have launched new products with lifetime sales of over a billion dollars. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, we're happy you're here and I guess let's start off easy. I mean, do you want to just give me a, a, a 10,000 foot overview of LeanMed? I'd be glad to. Um, LeanMed began uh, five years ago. I was teaching at the University of Pittsburgh in the bioengineering department. One of my students traveled to Africa and returned talking about the number of children that were dying of pediatric pneumonia. In that year, 2018, over a million children died as a result of pneumonia which was a shock to me and a lot of other folks that live here in the United States. Um, we wanted to do something about it. He formed a student team. I mentored them. Um, we entered a competition at the University of Pittsburgh in the Innovation Institute, took first prize, won $10,000. And with that money, we started the company in May of 2018. That's great. I mean, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, what, what is it? What is LeanMed? What do you guys do? How do you solve the problem? And uh, what is the impact that you're looking to have? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to, Scott. So what the concept is a solar-powered medical oxygen production system, because when we looked at the number of children that were dying from pneumonia, a significant cause was no access to medical oxygen. It's a significant therapy, and it was not available and by our count, there's over a billion people around the world who do not have access to medical oxygen. And a big reason for that is the lack of grid electricity, either none at all or very unreliable. So that drove us to look at solar energy for our source of power. And then we were fortunate enough to be um, uh, friends with colleagues with the people at Philips Respironics here in Pittsburgh. And they have a technology that they had developed for home use called the Ultrafill. And but no longer sold it. The, the market had moved on from that technology. So we licensed that technology from Philips, which was designed for the home U.S. market. And we have reinvented uh, that product into what we call the O2 Cube, which, again, is the solar powered medical oxygen production system that now can make oxygen available uh, in, in areas of the world that it never had been available before. Um, to put some numbers on it, um, today, this year, probably 800,000 deaths as a result of pediatric pneumonia. Clinical studies have demonstrated that if uh, you make oxygen available, you can cut the mortality rate by one third. So if you do the math, if we could deploy O2 cubes throughout the world, uh, we could save hundreds of thousands of children's lives every year. That's incredible. And I, I love the fact, cause you know, this is, we talk about startups that are having impacts. I love the fact that you look for one of the most uh, dire needs across the, the, the world founded in Africa and uh, we're willing to, to, you know, really 
be innovative in your approach at solving the problem. So that that's great. Um, Mark, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your background and, and what led you to LeanMed. Yeah, I, I think, um, well, I, my career spans about 30 years of new product development. I've always been a product developer, product manager. And as uh, Joel mentioned in my introduction, I, I spent most of my career at corporations doing new product development, uh, developing, um, you know, factory automation equipment, other, other uh, new products. Um, always for the benefit, you know, for the benefit of our customer, but also for the benefit of, of the company. Um, but the fact that I began to teach at the University of Pittsburgh and was teaching bioengineers how to do product development with medical devices, um, you know, is how I met James Newton, who was the, the student that traveled to Malawi just to, you know, that uncovered, if you will, this problem for us. But for me, in these last five years working at LeadMed, it's been remarkable to take the skills that I've developed over decades, you know, doing product development, but now bringing it, bringing it to market, bringing it to life for social impact, not just profit. And there's nothing wrong with profit. We're an LLC. We want to be self-sustaining as a business, but there is no question that what's dri driving us and the passion behind this is social impact. Uh, I teach a lean startup uh, at the at the University of Pittsburgh as part of my my course. And one of the things to keep in mind is that we're taught as entrepreneurs to get to scale. Well, if you don't scale, without scale, you don't have social impact. So for us, this mission of you know saving lives through the O2Q is completely in line with making and building a successful business. That's very cool. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by social impact and, and the intersection of social impact and business. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, is that something that you have always been interested in or is it something that uh, through experiences you came to? Or how, how did you become interested in social impact? I, really, it was it, it was five years ago when we began, you know, began this effort to bring the O2 Cube and not just to Africa, but eventually we'll we we'll go to Latin America and India as well, any low income country where, where people are lacking grid electricity. Um, no, I, I had, I, I had heard of the WHO and UNICEF and the Gates Foundation. I'd heard of all of them before, but you know, over the last five years, I've gotten to know people at all those organizations and it's just broadened, you know, my view of the world working with these NGOs. It's definitely, you know, they're a source of funding, they're a source of expertise. And uh, it's been it's been pretty remarkable getting to know some of those people and working with them. That's great. So, Mark, where is LeanMed now? What what uh, what stage are you guys at? Where have, are you deploying your technology? And uh, well, if so, how's it working? Yeah, actually, Scott. So, uh, as as I told you earlier, I'm sitting here in the lab at uh, Daedalus, which is in uh, which is in downtown Pittsburgh on Center Avenue. And I'm really excited because we have our first production unit running. I was here uh, when I took the call uh, running the system, just uh, taking it out a little bit. And then tomorrow we're having an open house here at Daedalus for people to come in and see the first production OTQ. So we're, you know, it's taken us five years, but I'm, I think I am proud of the fact we were a student project five years ago 
And this year, within five years, we will sh be shipping a, a medical, an FDA-registered medical device. So that that's a pretty rapid time to market, which was one of our goals. And it's a big milestone to actually now have customers. We have orders for four systems that will be going to Nigeria and to Uganda. And we hope, we really hope for thousands of more, but certainly it's been a big step forward to complete the first commercial bill. Well, and Mark, when we were talking earlier, I love the fact that you mentioned that you're actually it's such such a stereotypical startup story that you're actually building those four uh, units in your garage, correct? Yes, <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's frankly not a, a complex piece of equipment, the O2 cube, and we still use the Philips technology where there's a lot of the more intricate uh, work, I would call it. So it is very I'm very capable of of assembling and testing it in my garage. Remember now, we we're designing this for low-income countries, so I think it's a it's a almost a proof of concept on our assembly and test process. Uh, if if Atkins can do it in his garage, certainly people can do it in Kenya or Uganda uh, as well. Um, I think the other thing I would add about the development, you know, we're sitting here today at, at the commercial stage now, but we've gone through many iterations of design. And I want to make a big, I would make a big shout out to the kind of the community, the entire community we've had here. We started out of Pitt, but I've had CMU students, Duquesne, Duquesne students, biomed students built our first prototype back in 20, uh, 2019. So we've had students from Duquesne, CMU and Pitt all participate in the growth of, of the O2 cube. And then, uh, a year and a half ago, we won a $50,000 grant from Pitt and uh, in their pinch program, they call it the pinch competition. And that went a long way to advancing our understanding and our development of the O2Q. And then finally, while not a Pittsburgh story, it was rather interesting to do a crowdfunding campaign. So we actually went on a, a platform called WeFunder and we raised money and now have investors who came in from the outside and you could invest for as little as $100 in the lean net. So it's been a really remarkable development path, again, from, you know, a student project to a fully developed medical device. That does sound remarkable. And it's, it's such a Pittsburgh story, having both, you know, Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh hoping to collaborate to, to bring yeah. this to life. And, it, you know, it, it, and it's really one of the, one of the, beautiful parts about Pittsburgh and why over the last 20 years, we've seen the startup community really develop. So I'm curious, like on a, on a bigger level, like it, it is, uh, the impact on the city of Pittsburgh, is that part of your mission? Well, it, I have to say, uh, the, the, the longer term strategy would, is that these systems will be assembled and tested in the regions such as Africa and India and Asia. So that. It will not, we will not drive a tremendous amount of economic activity here in the Pittsburgh area. But, um, but what we will be doing is uh, it becomes a model for taking technology that exists here in Pittsburgh, applying innovation to it and making it viable in other parts of the world. That I believe will have a long, long run uh, with multiple products that can serve those markets. That's great. So talk to me, if, if everything goes well, Mark, what, 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 where, where, where does this go? I mean, is this, uh, 
deploy as many units as we can, and this is our technology, or is there a growth path beyond uh, these O2 units? Yeah, so I think what we've demonstrated with the O2 Cube is taking uh, a proven technology, in this case, Philips was the company that developed the oxygen production capability. They were no longer using it in its existing state, so they were willing to license it to us to take it into low-income nations. We've already have identified a number of other medical products that would be very valuable in the low-income countries, but are not there today. And we, we intend to license more technology from, I'll call it high-income or Western com companies in the U.S., in Europe, in Canada. So there is definitely a, a longer-term strategy to come behind the O2Cube with, with more medical product developed specifically with the low-income countries in mind. That's great. I, I, I love that goal. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the low-income countries that you are working with. I mean, wh what are the challenges? Um, and I imagine you'll be, you'll be facing some of these coming up as you get your product into market, but what are the challenges with working with these foreign, foreign yeah. countries and, and um, how have you been able to solve? I think that that's a remarkable part of the story as well. Our, the customers that we have today, the one in Nigeria and the other one in Uganda, they're part of a movement called Oxygen as a Service. And what this means is instead of selling the equipment to the healthcare facility that then has to staff up and take on the responsibility of actually operating the equipment, maintaining it, powering it, and so on, our customers are actually going to own the equipment. They will use it to produce the oxygen and then simply sell the oxygen in cylinder form to the healthcare center. What's exciting about it, and we're talking to organizations in just about every country in Africa right now, the O2 Cube gives an entrepreneur the opportunity in a, in a small city, a town, they could actually go into the oxygen as a service business by you know, buying or leasing one O2 Cube, starting their own business. You could literally, one person could run their own oxygen as a service business using the O2 Cube. We like to say we want to be the microbrewery of oxygen. So as you're familiar with microbreweries in every town, we'd like to be that for, for medical oxygen. And it's a, it's, it, I, I think it's probably the most exciting part because not only are we going to save lives, but we're going to create careers for people. We're going we're gonna to empower entrepreneurs to start a business, make money while saving lives. So that's a pretty remarkable part of this story as well. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because then beyond the help that you're creating medically, you are literally hoping to teach people entrepreneurism and, and how to run their own business, which, business. you know, you're, that, that's, that's phenomenal. I really applaud you on, on, on that goal and, and really hope you have success with that. Thank you. Yeah. So you, you talked Mark about the quick development of the product and, and it is remarkable how quick uh, you were able to, uh, to develop this. Um, but obviously I'm sure you face challenges in your development process. What kind, what kind of challenges have you faced and, and how have you yeah, overcome? No, <laughs> too many to count. Um, <laughs> I think, um, uh, certainly one part of it was the remoteness of the customer, right? I'm a strong believer in voice of customer understanding the problem that you're solving. 
on a very big level, broad level, we knew that there was a significant problem, right? 800,000 children dying every year is just horrible, okay? And so that problem uh, was there and very evident. To bring that down to the solution, right? And, and what is the right solution? Certainly we started with this concept of solar power because of the lack of grid. But beyond that, and, and the, it was to just really understand the requirements. So it, you know, we were able to overcome it. Uh, it took a lot of work to make those connections in Africa to have the real direct input on what the product should be, right? You can't develop new product without a really intimate understanding of your customer. So I would say, um, I would say that was one of the, uh, one of the more significant obstacles that we we've overcome. Um, the other one probably would come to mind is funding, which I'm sure, you know, I know is true of every startup, but I think the fact that we had the social mission at times it can influence, uh, investors and some people to think, well, they're only here to do good. And while it is a wonderful tailwind, uh, knowing that we're, you know, and people hearing our story that we're going to save lives, um, I, I wonder, you know, I think sometimes we were misunderstood and that we were an investable business as well. So those are two, you know, one financial, one uh, commercial customer obstacles that we faced um, in, in getting the market. Thanks for sharing. Uh, so we talked in the intro that you worked for two large Fortune 500 companies. Is this your first experience being an entrepreneur? In in this way, for sure. I, I have gone on my own independently to do consulting at times, but this is the first product startup. And I guess I then I'll add it, it incredible difference, right? Someone who's developed literally developed dozens of products over his lifetime, either personally or folks that worked for me. And now to, to be not in the the arms of a corporation, <laughs> but to be out on the street. And having to recruit people and money and facility and tools, it's, it's been a challenge. It's, uh, I've developed, you know, a great appreciation for entrepreneurship. It definitely, the, 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 the reassuring part is that the principles, concepts that I've used over those decades and taught, they all apply. It's just the environment that you're working in. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, and infinitely more difficult, I'll have to say, as an entrepreneur out on your own versus an intrapreneur uh, inside a corporation. There, there are challenges to being an intrapreneur, but those challenges are very different from the external entrepreneur that, that we're doing now. So can we dig into that a little bit? I mean, talk to me about the differences between being an entrepreneur at a Fortune 500 company versus being an entrepreneur out on your own creating Sure. Something sure. for nothing. Yeah. So the entrepreneur, um, harder because there's inertia, both companies and I'll say corporations in general, larger, more bureaucracy, more layers, more levels of improvement, levels for approvals. So it, it feels incredibly slow, just slow to get whatever new idea is going. You have to fight for it. That part is the same. You're the product champion in both cases. So you're out uh, advocating, evangelizing for your product. But, um, but th there are just those inherent constraints of the bureaucracy and 
split levels of decision making and so on. Um, where on your own, you, you're pretty much your own boss and, and, you, and you move as you want. On the flip side, once you can get into the innovation pipeline inside a corporation, the familiarity that you have with the environment for resources, right? First, you know, people, resources, facility, tooling, and funding, those people, for the most part, are familiar to, to you. You're familiar with them. They, they know you and your brand. They know who you are if you have a track record. So that part is rather easy, easy, I'll call it, or easier. Where if you're this external person and you're knocking on doors to people who've never met you before and you're trying to recruit them for work, trying to uh, collect uh, fin you know, financial support, it's just a more difficult road uh, when you're out there alone as, as opposed to being inside um, the four walls of a corporation. Interesting insights. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, having experienced both, you know, cause I always, I always say like entrepreneurs tend to be not able to go back to a, a, a fortune 500 company. I mean, do you feel, do you feel that way? Do you feel like it'd be very difficult to go back after experiencing uh, entrepreneurism? That's a good question. Now, that one I haven't been asked before, but, um, probably not only because I think what happens, I'm going to find out, right. If you can have one success as that external entrepreneur, certainly your ability to attract people and funding and technology will go up and it gets easier. I hope the second time externally, um, perhaps the only way to go back inside a corporation would be more in, in a self-funded area, uh, um, a skunk works or, a, a part of a company where there are less, less constraints. Because I think fighting the bureaucracy again would be completely terrible. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't <laughs> want, I don't want to go back to that again. So uh, I think that's the only way to go back into a corporate uh, life uh, environment would be if, if you're part of a business unit slash R&D uh, area where you've got quite a bit of freedom to operate. Yeah, I, I, uh, I started at a large financial corporation and... Um... I, I definitely believe everything you're saying about how slow things move, how innovation doesn't always happen so quickly. And, you know, to me running my company, I, I, we innovate quickly and we innovate without a lot of friction. And, uh, you know, that's something that is invigorating to me. Um, so I, I was always frustrated in the corporate in environment, Yeah, uh, but you know, entrepreneurism isn't for everyone there. As, as you mentioned, there's a lot of challenges. Yes, there are days that, that it looks pretty dark. I will add one thing that's an important tenet of product development and innovation. And that is that constraints drive innovation. So as you encounter these barriers that you inevitably will as an entrepreneur, there can be times where you think the game is over. Um, but if you're determined enough, you find a way through and, and actually, you know, the product is better perhaps, or the, the team is stronger for getting through that. So you have to remind yourself sometimes that the constraints that are come from, you know, being an external entrepreneur can actually produce a better result. That's a really good point. Really interesting. So switching point, gears a little bit. Oh, go ahead, please. 
Talk to me about how your culture and your values impact your vision. I think that is rather straightforward that um, because we started with this social impact mission, the people that have joined the team, the people that have contributed have all really come in with, with that inherent uh, belief structure. So right away, I, I think we're getting, we've recruited and the people we have are tremendous. Um, I think also an inherent filtering that goes on is as a, as a startup, you can't, you're not paying big salaries with lavish perks, any of that. So the people that do come forward and contribute, again, they're, they're driven because they want to learn, because they enjoy working together, because of the hope to, to deliver something that can save lives. So, so there's a really, um, there's a set of, again, filters or constraints that you're putting around yourself and your team, uh, for this kind of project that, uh, leads to, to, to really, um, you know, determined people, uh, knowledgeable people, uh, ethical people. I think we're, you know, we're very fortunate in that way with the company. Yeah. So it sounds like you, you set, you know, you, you set the, the mission and people are attracted to the mission of the business. And so therefore you're, you're very naturally creating a culture of yeah. good kind-hearted people that want to solve issues in the yeah, world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not to say that people want to start a company or build a company and make a lot of money. There, there's, that can be done in an ethical way as well. But I, I just, my, my gut says that uh, the people, and I look back, the dozens of people that have contributed to this program or the ones that are currently, um, it's just a wonderful set of people, you know, that have invested either their time or their money or connections. Um, it's a wonderful set of people we work with. It's great. That makes all, all the difference. Obviously, you spend a ton of time Aim working more. with those people. I, I'm curious, Mark, if you had to do it over again over the last five years, is there any anything you would have done differently to get to this point? That's a really good question, too. Um I, it's going to maybe sound straight, not really, but only that there were so many things that I needed to learn that I know now, but I don't know that I could have known them ahead of time. I, I think part of it, and I'm, I'm, my guess is, well, I've mentored, let me just say this, I've mentored a lot of student projects and worked with some people that have gone on to build companies. There almost has to be a, a bit of don't know what you don't know because otherwise you'd be a fool to start. Right? <laughs> no, I, 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 there are some people that I've met along the way, born five years ago, when we put the, the idea of the O2 cube in front of them, completely dismissed it, completely just said, never work, won't work, too expensive. And through all these, and these were people who knew, supposedly knew the the industry knew the marketplace knew the the situations in countries like in the regions like Africa and they just dismissed it out of hand well it they become blinded after a while they they build their own set of filters and they can't really uh, see the possibility and I think there was a little bit of that blind faith that just said we're going to find a way so back to the constraints you know we would face an obstacle 
and overcome it. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I, I mean, now that I'm closer to what the answer is, there's a lot of things I could have done better, but I don't know. I, I, you know, I didn't know those things when we started. Right. Um, and I, if you'd like, I'm sure I can think of example, whether it was sales channels or the technology or, uh, I lacked an understanding of the, the importance, for example, the O2 cube is a very low energy system. It draws very low, uh, power. And that is something that Phillips put in their original design. Um, I didn't understand that. I'll say I didn't understand that at the beginning, but now that I'm much more uh, knowledgeable in the area of solar energy, you realize that low power consumption is a critical, critical feature that you want. Um, and we're very fortunate that we have the lowest, we can produce more oxygen per kilowatt than any system anywhere. And, uh, it, it, you know, that's something I didn't know at the beginning, for example. At the, that's a nice thing to find out. <laughs> yeah. yeah serendipity is the, uh, is the result of hard work, right? So there's been a lot of serendipitous things that have happened that have moved us forward, but they don't come without putting the work in first. All right. So Mark, we went backwards. We talked about the last five years. Let's move forward five years. Ideal world. Everything goes as planned. What, what does Lean Red look like? Yeah. So in five years, uh, we expect to have, uh, manufacturing assembly and test sites in Africa, Latin America, probably India in the, for South Asia. Um, so we'll have manufacturing facilities. We'll have direct people in, uh, in those regions working for lean med, but it'll really be in support. I hope of hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurs that will be running, uh, oxygen as a service businesses, and that we'll be building thousands of O2 cubes every year. And what that translates into the, the math, there's different ways to calculate it, but in a given year, an O2 cube can treat so many children which will result in a, a cut in mortality rate. So the, the round number is to think that an O2Q1 can save 30 children's lives per year. So for every O2Q we put in the field, every year, 30 lives are being saved. And then, you know, what I'd like to see that happen is we sell thousands of these, then, you know, then we're saving tens of thousands of lives every year. So that's where I, I'm, I'm confident we will be in five years. It's cool. We, I mean, we, we, this is startup impact radio. We talk about impact. Is there any greater impact than saving a child's life? I mean, that that's really we, amazing. We talk sometimes as a father for what I can't imagine watching my young child die, uh, knowing that oxygen is, would save their life, but it's not available to me. Think about that for a moment. Think about losing a child, knowing there, there is a therapy available, but not to you because you, where you were born, that's can keep you awake at night. <laughs> and not only a therapy available, but we're talking oxygen. It's, it's yeah. one of the, 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 the one, one of the nice, you reminded me one of the nice things about running an, an O2 cube. And if you're one of these entrepreneurs and you're running your business, when you think about what your costs are to operate your business, your raw material inputs are sunshine and air. So you literally have free inputs to produce a valuable, uh, drug, medical oxygen is classified as a drug. 
So it's a rather remarkable thought also that dawned on me much later in this project that, wow, when you sit down and look, put your profit and loss together for your business, you have no raw material <laughs> costs, sunshine and air. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, my last question before we, you know, sort of transition out of this conversation, you know, fast forward, we went five years, let's go further. I mean, how, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want your company to be remembered? Yeah, I, I think it, one, I hope to have a tremendous success with the O2Q and be recognized for that. We have been recognized by the World Health Organization already as an innovative health technology. That was a nice uh, recognition to get a couple of years ago, and it, it's helped us move forward. But I, I, I want the O2Q to be recognized as a significant innovation. And then I think, as I mentioned earlier, there are many other existing technologies today that are serving Americans and Europeans. And I think LeanNet can take some of those proven technologies and through innovation, uh, make them available at an attractive uh, cost into the low-income countries. So I hope we have two, three, or four more products uh, in our pipeline or in the market. That's where I'd like to be in 10 years. Very cool. That's great. Well, I really appreciate this conversation, Mark. It's been really interesting. We're, we're going to close with one more light question that uh, Joe and I always ask. And uh, that is, what, what is your drink of choice right now? It can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. What, uh, what do you drink? Oh, I have, a, I have one immediately. I'm, I'm a ginger beer drinker. Ginger beer? Yes. What's your ginger beer of choice? Well, there's a couple. There's the Jamaica, there's Reeds, and there's Cock and Bull. Those are three brands. I want. I want to. I want to cut for the uh, the free ad for talking to you. <laughs> well, and I for one will try some because I've I've had a Moscow Mule with ginger beer, but I've never actually just drank in a gin, had a drink of a gin, yeah. ginger beers. Go into your bar sometime and just say, tell them you want a virgin Moscow Mule, and you'll get it. That's what a ginger beer would be. Or ask for a ginger beer straight. And they'll, they'll have, bars will have ginger beer, but they, they normally, you're right. They normally serve it as part of a Moscow mule. Great. Well, I will, uh, I will give that a try and, uh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. Absolutely. So thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. It all helps. You can follow me on LinkedIn at scotttoe-sfp. You can follow Joel also at LinkedIn at joel-reed-oa. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. 